0: It was a married couple, and they were named John and Lavinia Fisher. They ran an inn out of their home, and they called it the Six Mile Wayfarer House. Lavinia would make a special tea for the lodgers. Sometimes it had sedative, sometimes it had poison. So men would come in, she'd give them the tea, then they'd go back to their rooms and pass out. John would sneak into the room and stab them to death so they could steal anything of value in the room. Then there were other stories that said that it was Lavinia who would sneak into the room and pull a lever that dropped the unconscious man into a bed of spikes in the cellar. Then they had a visitor named John Peoples who came to stay, and he was very suspicious about Lavinia and her tea. So he didn't drink it, and when he went back to his room, instead of laying in the bed, He propped a chair up against the door and he slept there. So as soon as John and Lavinia came to sneak into the room, Peoples woke up, ran, jumped out the window. John and Lavinia were eventually arrested for highway robbery and when their home was searched, police found stolen belongings, sedatives, poison, and body parts. When they went to jail, John actually was able to escape but ended up going back for Lavinia and they were taken to the gallows together. Kind of romantic in a messed up way.
1: Have
0: you heard the story of... And written on the wall... And in everyone blood. has
1: the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. They're telling you stories of the old... There was
0: this girl... It was back when we were little kids. To find
1: out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American history.
2: A story behind the story. Because it's just a story.
1: Hello and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story.
2: Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our myths and misdeeds, fears and fables say about us as
1: humans. Welcome all back to the show.
2: Hi! Is everybody having a lovely week? It is the week for love. It is the week for love and the week for popping heart-shaped balloons when you sit at home and talk to your cat angrily about how there's nothing on TV and ignore your huge list of saved television programs that you've been squirreling away on your TiVo and pretend they're not there and act like Netflix doesn't exist and just flip aimlessly through the channels and drink that second bottle of wine anyway, even though you opened it three weeks ago and it kind of tastes like vinegar. But you don't care. You don't care at all because it's just that kind of day. No one understands. And then you see that you have on pink socks and your pink socks infuriate you because they're Trying to cajole you into entertaining the idea that this day means anything. You know who this day means things to? Birds. That's it. Just birds. Beginning of bird mating season. That's all. That's all. Sam. What? That's a terrible affirmation. I'm sorry. I really hate Valentine's Day. (laughs) Like a lot.
1: Now, before we get to this (laughs) week's topic and before Sam rants off about Valentine's Day for a week or two... Uh, We do want to thank everyone for coming back. Uh, Everyone for leaving ratings and reviews. You know, you can reach out to us on Twitter at StoryPod or any other of the social media outlets which you choose.
2: We're on Facebook. We have a page. It's been really growing. I've been really excited to see how many people are finding us there. And we also have Instagram, of course. And we have our fabulous website where we keep all of the source material for all of these wonderful episodes.
1: That's right, um, and you can, so you can find out lots of information about the topics we discuss on the website. Also, you can find links to our merch store.
2: It's fancy, fancy merch with my design. I'm wearing it now.
1: And you can also find links to our Patreon page.
2: Where you can go and subscribe. If you make a recurring donation, we will send you an AMFM radio. Or uh, a right, tote bag. In a tote bag, and we won't talk about it for seven hours on air every week. I always feel like I'm being held hostage during the NPR pledge drive, so we're not going to do that to you. But if you'd like to become a sustaining member, you uh, can drift over there to our Patreon and do so. We have a variety of prizes, including our mini-sodes, baby pods, whatever we call them. Just
1: the stories.
2: And we have virtual meetups, digital meetups, some kind of meetups. And we have stickers. Stickers are fun. Everybody loves a sticker.
1: And also the chance to come on the show and discuss some urban legends. So head over to our website and find all that fun stuff.
2: And if you are feeling like you have some urban legends you need to get off your chest, if there are things that are whispered about around town that you want to tell us all about that are keeping you up at night you can reach us on the urban legend hotline and that number is 512-222-3375 and we welcome you to call and leave a voicemail if you get cut off in the middle only lets you go about three minutes you can always call back and tell us more if you're alone this valentine's day give us a call give us a call you You... tell us about your ex oh we will listen and we won't play it on the air Unless you tell us to, and we totally will. But uh, I will be your Valentine. I love you all, and you're my favorite people in the whole world. Yeah, you. You especially. You right there. And we
1: do love all of our listeners. You may think, oh, shit, this episode's going to be about Valentine's Day. But it's not. It's not. It's not. Don't start like that. People in the future are going to be like, oh, skip.
2: (laughs) Yeah, they are. It's not about Valentine's Day. It's bigger than Valentine's Day. It's about the idea of the perfect love. The perfect couple. The greatest love story
1: ever told. Boy, do we have some great love stories for you today. So we started off the episode with a listener recounting the tale of America's first female serial killer. Lavinia Fisher.
2: Could her name sound any more dastardly?
1: Mm, And her husband, John. Okay, yeah, that doesn't sound like much. This is John. This is John. So John and Lavinia Fisher are a classic American legend from South Carolina, Charleston, to be precise. Am I? So this all occurred in the early 1800s. John Lavina Fisher owned an inn, the Six Mile House, which was—is it
2: six miles away from Charleston?
1: It was. That's
2: me using context clues, ladies and gentlemen.
1: They were clever. So this was a you know a little inn, and people would stop on their way into Charleston and out. It was a very big trade hub, and rumors started circulating that people would check in and
2: never check out. Boom, boom. boom. Cause that's rock and roll
1: So whenever people would stop in A lonely businessman Or a trapper The beautiful Lavinia Fisher Would sit down by the men She'd talk to them She'd charm them
2: Well she's from the south It's easy to do
1: She was a great host And you know she'd be able to, be able to Find out what they were doing What they were carrying if they had any valuables
2: Oh, you know, we can just put them over here in the safe, watch them for you, keep an eye on them, wouldn't want anything to
1: happen to them, you know. Well, they'd go to more extremes than that, even. So, one day, a fur trader, John Peoples, stopped at the inn, and Lavinia was being her normal, friendly self, and John was kind of getting concerned because he'd been drinking, he'd been talking... He was worried maybe he said a little too much. And Lavinia was getting a little too friendly. Oh, no. Tongues will wag. So she often gave her boarders a cup of tea to help them sleep at night. Mm -hmm. And she gave him this cup of tea, and he took it up to the room and said thank you. And he didn't like the tea, threw it out. Mm. And he he was getting worried. So instead of going to sleep, he took a chair... And he sat in the corner, staring at the door.
2: Why'd he sit in the corner, staring at the door?
1: He was waiting for something to happen. He thought the fishers might come in and rob him.
2: So his, he was suspicious of them getting him drunk? And talking him up. Okay.
1: And as he was standing there at night watch, suddenly a trap door opens. And suddenly the bed falls below.
2: We all deserve to die. Even you, Mr. Border, even I. When right, look- Sweeney
1: Todd? Yeah. Is what we're going to yeah. Kind of. And so when he looked down into the pit... Skeletons everywhere. Yes. Oh no, that is so creepy. Along with John Fisher standing there.
2: With an axe. With an axe. It's always an axe. (laughs) Don't want to waste a good bullet on
1: anybody. It's much quieter.
2: True. No, it's really not.
1: We don't awake anybody else. I
2: mean, you've seen the guy that hits the melons as part of his act. What's his name? Gallagher? Yeah. Gallagher? You know how noisy that shit is. Imagine a head. (laughs)
1: Can we never talk about Gallagher again on the show?
2: No. No no promises.
1: So Peoples did escape because he didn't go down the trap door. He alerted authorities who came out to the inn and arrested the fishers.
2: Sounds like they probably should have. Yeah. Sounds like it was like a pretty obvious con.
1: Yeah, but they also found the lime pit under the inn full of
2: skeletons and bodies. Yeah.
1: So they were convicted of murder. And sentenced to hang. Bum bum bum. Supposedly, John pinned all the blame on his wife.
2: But he had the axe.
1: Rumors and speculation. (laughs) It didn't fool anybody.
2: Oh, they knew better? They all got convicted. Oh, okay. But he betrayed her.
1: Yes. And she was a...
2: Woman scorned. And hell had no fury like her.
1: She was just a nasty woman.
2: Oh, no. This is why we can't let women in the workplace, Jacob.
1: Nothing but trouble. According to tales, Lavinia Fisher went to the gallows in her wedding dress. Why would she do that? Because she thought that they would, like, give her mercy.
2: Oh, wait. Was she like... No, there's... I've heard this story. She's, like, begging for anyone in the crowd to save her and marry her. Because she thought if she could marry a respectable man, she wouldn't have to hang. It was like this...
1: That's one version of the tale. Yeah.
2: No one took, no takers, apparently. <laughs> no takers. She was apparently like, they talked about how beautiful she was. There's course. a
1: supposed portrait of her, which is it's very unlikely. It's of her, and she is beautiful. Portrait's beautiful. So as she walks up the gallows in her wedding dress, and they put the noose around her neck, and they ask her for any last words, she says. Does she, she, curse, says,
2: him? Does she say curse him? No. Does she say, sisters? And they sing, and they go, bye, 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 bye. Like in Hocus Pocus? No. Oh.
1: She says, if you have a message you want to send to hell, give it to me. I'll carry it. And the door opens, and she's hanged.
2: <sighs> Old words, you saucy minx. So is that how it happened? That's what actually happened? There's historical record?
1: There's a historical record? Oh. <laughs> uh- so now it's stated that she haunts the old jail on Magazine Street in Charleston. Charleston
2: has a Magazine Street, too?
1: It's a popular old name. Okay, cool. That'll make a ghost. It's a good story. It'll make a ghost. It's a hell of a story.
2: I like it. I can tell by the, the glint in your eye. And what we do on the show. And what
1: we do on the show that that's just a story. So Of course it so is. So give
2: me the facts,
1: Jack. Well, the facts are pretty great, honestly. So, Lavinia and John Fisher are real people. She was hanged in 1820, but not for murder, for highway robbery.
2: She was a highwayman woman? Yes. Oh my god, I need to sing again. I've had to sing so much on this episode. I was a highwayman. Along the coach roads I did ride.
1: Okay. (laughs) She and her husband were members of a large gang of highwaymen. Who operated out of two houses outside of Charleston, the five-mile house and the six-mile house. They just got cleverer and cleverer, didn't they? So in 1819, wagon trade was disrupted by a band of outlaws. Really? For real. Because like I said, it was a huge trading hub and wagon trade was huge. It was a big component of the economy.
2: And so they were impeding trade along these newly formed roads with wagons and stealing goods and maybe horses and things?
1: Causing chaos.
2: Causing havoc, wreaking things.
1: So a group of citizens decided to take matters into their own hands. The Charleston News and Courier from the time reported... A gang of desperadoes have for some time past occupied certain houses in the vicinity of Ashley Ferry, practicing every deception upon the unwary and frequently committing robberies upon defenseless travelers. It was determined by a number of citizens to break them up, and they accordingly proceeded in a cavalcade on Thursday afternoon to the spot, having previously obtained permission of the owner of some small houses to which these desperadoes resorted. To proceed against the premises in such manner as circumstances might require. I'm not the hero Charleston needs. I'm the hero Charleston deserves. You think? And so this group of Batmen.
2: We're going with it. Get that image. But they have on white, like uh, Colonel Sanders suits with a Batman cowl. It happened. We said it. Now it's fact.
1: Sure. So they went and went to the five mile house, ordered everybody out. And burned it down Holy shit <laughs> Serious, serious Vigilating <laughs> justice Proceed against the premises in any such manner as circumstances might require They're like We can burn it You think that means burn it? I think it does Batman
2: Alright Batman Let's go in there And light us a fire It's my chilly out.
1: So once they get to The six-mile house They again evict All the tenants And this time They're like Maybe we shouldn't Burn it down it may have been a bit much. But they leave a man named Dave Ross to guard it. All yeah. right, Batman. You stay right here, okay, Batman? All right, Batman. It's like if Matthew McConaughey played Batman. Is that what you're doing?
2: Uh Now everyone knows. All right, all right, all right. I'll be right here
1: just watching the house making sure nobody bothers it. He's the Austin Batman. Hey, Batman. So the next morning... Two men from the outlaw gang break into the house and assault Dave Ross, driving him outside where he's surrounded by the gang, including nine or ten men and one woman.
2: How do we know? Like, he says there was a woman there and she was beating
1: him up. So as he was getting his ass kicked, he said, oh,
2: no, y'all, stop.
1: He looked at Lavinia. Uh Uh-huh. And he asks her for help. And Lavinia, instead of helping him, chokes him. And shoves his head through a window.
2: That's kind of the opposite of help. She went the other way with that one. She put it down, flipped it, and reversed it.
1: So two hours later, John Peoples was heading out of Charleston in his wagon. So that's the same John Peoples. Uh, Well, one would think. And he stops near the six-mile house to water his horse. There, he is attacked by the gang, including Lavinia Fisher. And they stole about $40 from him.
2: Which is like probably like four grand today
1: (laughs) the charleston courier reported 1819 we are informed and requested to state that mr john people who was robbed and unmercifully beaten by the villains mentioned above is an honest industrious young man from the country and had a sum of money entrusted to his care which the robbers took from him so people's report to the authorities that he had quote just cause to believe that among them was william hayward john fisher and his wife lavinia fisher Joseph Roberts and John Andrews.
2: I mean, people must have been so scandalized that there was a woman taking part in this, like, debauchery
1: in 1819. Right? So now they have IDs on the people Mm -hmm. from people. From peoples. And they go to arrest the gang members. Okay. And the sheriff has brought a hell of a posse. I love a good posse. And so the gang members give up when they see that they are way outmatched.
2: By the posse of Batman.
1: And so John and Lavinia Fisher are arrested. Mm-hmm. And they are charged, eventually, the charges change, with highway robbery. As they were investigating the house, they found a grave 200 yards from the Six Mile house with two bodies in it. That's pretty damning. But one of them was a black woman who had probably been dead for two years, who I am I read this everywhere. I don't know how they aged a body in 1820.
2: Oh, like dated it? Yeah. They called up Grandison Harris and were like, hey, buddy, what's it look like when they're not fresh?
1: You said a few years till he was around. So they do plead not guilty, but that isn't swaying anybody. What
2: was the other body? There was the one. Oh,
1: um, the other body was supposedly fresher. Oh, Yeah, and I mean, there's all kind of speculation about it. I think that's all it is, is speculation. Mm -hmm. You really can't say anything, and I'm really not buying that they were able to date a body 200 years ago.
2: They were counting maggots like Grissom.
1: So they were convicted by the jury. They were kept in the Charleston jail, so they did stay there. And because they were a married couple, John and Lavinia were kept in the debtor's quarters in the upper part of the jail rather than the heavily guarded lower floor. So on September 13th, they actually attempted to escape through a hole they made under the window of the cell with a rope made of blankets. Really? That actually happened
2: when I thought that was just a story in, like in general. The sheet rope out the window in the jail? That's
1: like Bugs Bunny. But to show you that this story really is about true love.
2: Okay. Wow
1: me. John escapes. Mm-hmm. He was about to and he could have got away before they found him. But since Lavinia was not able to get away, he turned himself back in.
2: Aww,
1: that's sort of sweet. And then on Fe- February 4th, 1820, they were taken to a gallows erected on Meeting Street just outside the city limits of Charleston. Each was wearing a loose-fitted white robe over their clothes.
2: Mm, that's where the wedding dress thing comes from? Maybe. It would make
1: sense. It makes sense. And it was a public execution, so... Our buy was there. All of the fine Batman. people of Charleston. All the fine Batman. Yeah, but in their finery. With
2: their back gals. Like Bruce Wayne. Oh, all the Bruce Wains. Okay, got it.
1: So at the time, while they were in jail, there was a minister that was trying to, you know, like save their souls. Minister to yeah. them. Yeah. And John took to it really well. Lavinia did not. Oh, well. I'm surprised she wasn't branded a witch immediately. So in the Charleston paper, from the day after, you have... They arrived at the fatal spot. Some time was spent in conversation and prayer... Fisher protested his innocence of the crime for which he was to die to the last, but admitted that he had lived a wicked and abandoned life. He met his fate with great firmness and expressed his obligation to the new sheriff for his kindness and humanity. His wife did not display as much of fortitude or resignation. She appeared to be impressed with the belief to the last moment that she would be pardoned. A little past two o'clock, the husband and wife embraced each other up on the platforms for the last time in the world when the fatal signal was given the drop fell and they were launched into eternity
2: oh my god it's better i think it's better than the legend
1: the real story is great but according to historians and this is kind of taken from other accounts john was peacefully went he had kind of converted and to Jesus as his own personal Lord and Savior.
2: He was resigned to his fate.
1: And Lavinia had to be dragged to the gallows and was beseeching the crowd the whole time. The quote, she stamped in rage and swore with all the vehemence of her amazing vocabulary, <laughs> calling down damnation on a governor who let a woman swing. The crowds stood shocked into silence while she cut short one curse with another <laughs> and ended with a, a volley of shrieks. If I have to be hanged, that's how I'm going. And there is documentation of her saying the "I'll send the letters to hell" thing. Yeah, at the time, still doesn't mean it's necessarily true. Oh, what? Wait, no, she was
2: presenting alternative facts. Okay, alternative facts, correct.
1: So she was not a serial killer. No, not so much. No, she was not the first woman hanged in the U.S. No, there were 35 before her. Well, Salem. Right? Uh, all of the witch trials and things. And one author, Bruce Orr, wrote a book about this called Six Miles to Charleston.
2: Because it was the house. It was called. Yeah. The, it's, it's clever.
1: And he <laughs> ran across one record suggesting that the Fishers were serial killers from the time. And it was a book written by a Scottish author, Peter Nielsen, in 1830, 10 years after the couple's execution. And it was just an example of like a penny dreadful.
2: Oh, well,
1: cool. <laughs> so that may be where that's
2: where it got collapsed yeah. and yeah, reinterpreted and yeah, leave it to pulp to create legends out of true life events that really don't need to be created in the first place. That's key. Write that down. It's key. You're gonna need that later. So a true love story Charleston style. So that's a love story. A love story. An American love story of outlawry and Finding peace in each other's arms at the very end and going down together.
1: With a few murders and assault and robbery mixed in.
2: Yeah, slamming a guy's head through a window. It's just a good old-fashioned American good time. It's the American way. It is. It's what we do here. That's a pretty good story. I thought so. But I've got one. Okay. That swashbuckles. Ooh. I think that's a verb.
1: (laughs) It is now. (laughs) So this
2: is the story of a pair of star-crossed lovers making their way across the seven seas, up to no good. This is the story
1: of Anne Bonny
2: and Calico Jack.
1: Ooh, I can hear the Pirates of the Caribbean theme song in the background (laughs) as you speak.
2: Oh, much eyeliner. So most of the information about these two comes from a book called A General History of Robberies and Murders of the Most Notorious Pirates by Captain Charles Johnson. And a lot of people think that is the nom de plume of one Daniel Defoe
1: author of Robinson Crusoe
2: that's the one Anne was born in County Cork, Ireland she was the illegitimate daughter of her father and a maid and so she was dressed as a boy so that her father could bring her into the household and introduce her as the child of a relative now why she had to be a boy for this purpose I don't know but she did so they dressed her in drag as a kid
1: because it fits so well with the story
2: right And so, apparently she was discovered and had to be sent away.
1: Scandalous.
2: Not just a little away.
1: All the way away. All the way away to... America.
2: Charleston. (gasps) Again. Yes. All the good stories are there. Today. So, she was known as having a fierce and courageous temper, and she supposedly murdered a servant girl with a case knife and beat a suitor half to death when he tried to rape her, which, cool. She eventually married a poor sailor and moved to New Providence, Bahamas. Oh, that's Nassau. The, her husband was a rat fink. What? He was a snitch.
1: A snitch. I
2: think he got stitches.
1: Oh, I think he did.
2: And he turned on the pirates, and I, like I said... Stitches, stitches. get stitches. Yeah. 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 And, but Anne spent most of her time drinking at a local saloon. Yes,
1: yeah, she did. Seducing
2: pirates. Oh, my. You know that was a smelly job. And as... Daniel Defoe puts it, she was not altogether so reserved and point of chastity.
1: That's some great euphemisming.
2: Yes, it is. <laughs> and there's tale that her husband, James Bonney, surprised her once by finding her lying in a hammock with another man, which didn't go over so well. A
1: pirate hammock.
2: And she left the Ratfink, moved on, and she met a man named Calico Jack captain calico jack captain calico jack is a total badass he had a hell of a fashion sense i think he was sort of the keith richards of pirating he wore calico he did much calico very colorful how can you not fall for the keith richards of pirates he I was can, a pirate I like you're
1: avoiding mentioning johnny depp
2: <laughs> oh yeah well no i just i think he was sort of more of a rock star than an actor
1: yeah but Trying to base that character on Keith Richards.
2: Well, Keith Richards was his dad in the movie too. Actually, remember right. like eventually that happened. Matter. Sorry, I didn't actually mean to do that. Let's maybe he's the David Bowie of pirates. I don't know. And Bonnie left to go with Calico Jack. His real name was Jack Rackham. Calico Jack had been given a pardon for his pirately ways.
1: Oh, good. He was. Putting the old hook and Jolly Roger up. He actually
2: used the Jolly Roger. Most pirates did not actually use the Jolly Roger. Right. He's like credited with popularizing it. Yes. And pirate rock star fashion. And so the pair and their new crew escaped to the sea together. And they were like, I know you get that pardon and all. That's great. But there's this sloop over there and it looks... Delectable.
1: It's so nice and
2: shiny. So I think that uh they just looked over and they said that captain there that captain, he looks quite dapper, and I think he has some really interesting things to say about advertising. The captain's name was John Ham. Really? Yes. So they went
1: and stole John Ham's ship. That's not nice. I'm sure he was just passed out in a drunken stupor.
2: He was he sat calmly with his arm on the side rail. With a cigarette between his fingers and a rocks glass just watching the whole thing happen. Watching the decade fall apart. So they sailed the Caribbean for two months. And they took over other ships and Rackham would invite the crew of the other ships to join him. Which was pretty common. Yeah, very common. Low loyalty among thieves, you know. And also, maybe you die if you don't come. Cake or death. (laughs) Cake or death. And so upon joining the crew... She was kind of made fun of for being a woman. Because people didn't so much like women being on ships. Blackbeard would allow no women on his ship. They were bad luck. They were bad luck. and he would, So he gave them bad luck instead by strangling them and throwing them overboard. If they took any women. Blackbeard was a badass. Also Carolina guy. One guy is like, what you doing with a stupid wench on your ship, Calico Jack? And who told you boas were good for sailing?
1: So what did Calico Jack do?
2: Uh, Calico Jack did dick shit, and Bonnie stabbed him in the heart. Nice. (laughs) Most of the time, she was like just dressed like a lady ish. (laughs) If you could be a lady on a ship full of pirates, and she would kind of be like his his buddy and his helper, and just you know his his woman lover. I think it's very much a woman, winch, probably a winch. During engagements with other ships, she would. Dress up like a dude I guess because so they wouldn't know she was a woman Strangle her and throw her overboard I'm not sure Or like kidnap her and rape her Okay that makes sense too. And she would have a sword hitched at her side And a brace of pistols tucked under a sash And she would cover her hair with a cap And then A magical thing happened What's that? Well what's better than one lady pirate? Two lady pirates Yes! Anne Bonnie met Mary Reed, and that was just magic. According to Johnson, Defoe-ish, Rackham's ship conquered Mary's somewhere in the West Indies, and Mary was among those taken prisoner. After the engagement, Anne, dressed in female attire, tried to seduce the handsome new recruit.
1: Scandalous. Right?
2: Mary, perhaps fearing the jealous rage of the rock star pirate god, Calico Jack, informed annie that uh she was a lady and showed her her boobs what The story it, does get better right Anne was like those are nice madam thank you for that and but she said i shouldn't tell anybody because you might get strangled and thrown overboard and so they became besties bff, BFF I'm G. Yeah. let's kill some people yeah And some people say that they became, like, really besties and shared all their lady parts.
1: Like they were special friends. They were
2: special friends. Special English friendships. So they pirated around, captured some ships, and they fought and killed people and stuff. And one night, Anne and Mary were on deck, and they saw a governor's sloop approaching, which sounds like a euphemism, and shouted for the men to take arms. But Captain John Barnett ordered the pirates to surrender. Captain John Burnett was on the governor's ship. We don't like that guy. Remember that. Boo. Boo. That's key. So, Calico Jack began to fire. But then,
1: that motherfucking rock star pirate god surrendered. Or he wanted to, at least. It's important to point out that all the other shipmates were, like, passed out drunk.
2: Well, you know. There is such a thing as too much fun. And Anne and Mary refused to surrender and began firing and swinging cutlasses. And legend has it that Mary turned to her cowering shipmates and said, If there's a man among ye, you'll come up here and fight like the men you're meant to be.
1: Nice, It's the best burn ever.
2: Calico Jack Rackham was scheduled to be executed by hanging. Um, and his final request was to see Anne Bonny one last time. His one true love. My one true love. But Anne was not moved. She said to him, If you'd Fought like a man. You need not have been hanged like a dog.
1: They are great with these one-liners. Mm-hmm. Like,
2: so 10 days later, she and Mary stood trial at St. Yago de la Vega in Jamaica. And both of them were like, we're not guilty.
1: And they were found guilty.
2: They we were found guilty. Oh, my God. Next slimmer party is going to be such a bummer. But, funny thing, they were like... I'm Governor. I couldn't possibly be hanged. I'm with
1: child. That was convenient. Who said that? Both of them. Oh, very convenient. (laughs) I plead my belly. That's what they called it. Nice. Plead in
2: your belly. A lot of women did that during the Salem Witch Trials, which is just a story for another day.
1: So, yeah, that's the story of Anne Bonny. So that's a great true love story between Calico Jack and Anne Bonny and... Mary reed <laughs> Oh, well. It's a lovely love triangle. You
2: know, whatever. I don't know how triangular
1: it was. I think it might have been straight. Like a straight line.
2: I think it wasn't straight.
0: I mean, but I think it was line. a singular line.
2: <laughs> Just one line, right? One line. Yes. I think the women were lovers. And Calico Jack was lucky if they accidentally showed him a boob to prove they weren't men once in a while. He'd always be like, I forgot. I think you're a man again. You're a man. Ah, <laughs> oh, no you're not. Back to work, you <laughs> indeed, <inch. laughs> ladies. Arg indeed. <laughs> so where I've taken you out on the seven seas, the high seas of adventure, where will you take me on this loving journey of outlawry and death?
1: And love. And love to... The most American of places. The Wild Wild West? The Wild Wild West. And not the Will Smith movie you promised before we continue? Oh, I, I'm going to need a minute. Okay,
2: well you can, you can have one because I'm not listening.
1: I'm so glad you didn't sing that I song. I
2: don't know it. If I knew what I would. I can't remember it.
1: So this is the story of the love of the bandit queen of the west.
2: I want that title, oh my god.
1: The bandit queen of the west, Bell Star. I want that name. So she used to be an extremely recognizable Wild West character, just like Jesse James or Billy the Kid, because she was featured in Richard Fox's National Police Gazette.
2: Oh. And um,
1: the dime novel he wrote, Bell Star, the Bandit Queen, or... You know, they always had, like, multiple titles. Uh-huh. The Female Jesse James, A Full and Authentic History of the Dashing Female highwayman, with copious extracts from her journal, handsomely and profusely illustrated. <laughs> Where were the illustrations with all this text? I don't know. I want
2: a copy. If anyone has a copy, send it to me. I want it.
1: <laughs> so, there went on to be plays about her and movies. There were silent films and talkies and... There were poems, and there's a Woody Guthrie song. There's a Woody Guthrie song about... E- Woody or Arlo? Woody. Woody! Oh my god,
2: there's a Woody Gut- Guthrie song about everything.
1: A lot of people early on, especially on those, like, movies and stuff, would use this dime novel. This as pulp their... fiction. <laughs> to base their character upon. Of course. But just like the other stories we've told, truth is not always more boring than fiction. Seldom. Seldom is. So Miss Bell Star was a fine Southern lady. All these women are Southern. You noticing that? It's interesting. <laughs> uh huh. Mary was English, and Anne was born Irish. in
2: Ireland until she was like too old to pass for a boy. Then she moved to South Carolina, and shit got real.
1: One person was able to ID them, Anne and Mary. Uh huh. And in like quoted in the transcript, it was like. I knew it was them because of the size of their ample breasts.
2: Oh, my God. I don't want to be ID'd by boob. I don't think that
1: stands up in court. So what is the truth about Belle Starr? Her reputation was as this bad outlaw. I mean, just a a female female Jesse James. James, She was going around shooting everybody and robbing everybody and (laughs) riding her horse through town and killing people with no thought, no conscience. Yes. Serial killer. Again, uh, let's
2: hang her up. String her up, boys.
1: Come on. Not necessarily true, but again, sometimes truth is still extremely interesting. So she was born in Missouri in 1848. Her mother's main name was Hatfield. Of those Hatfields?
2: Like, if I was a McCoy, I would be grimacing right now and spitting and
1: things. Oh, yes. Spitting and howling. Yowlin'. The teenage Belle, which that was not her real name, volunteered at the time to spy on the troops, the Union troops, and tell the Confederate guerrilla soldiers who her brother was a part of about their locations. Oh my, Belle. So after the war, the family did leave Missouri and move to, yes?
2: Texas! Texas! Where all the good stuff happens. (laughs) They
1: moved outside of Dallas area... And they became involved with the James Younger gang. Oh, yeah, that'll do it. That'll make you an outlaw real quick. And they knew them from Missouri. They actually grew
2: up together. Which may have been where they got the idea for guerrilla
1: warfare and espionage. (laughs) A lot of the members of the gang were guerrilla warfare fighters for the Confederacy. A lot of those Wild West shooter guys were.
2: Good luck bringing them in
1: think we know how that turns out
2: i've seen a movie or two about those kind of things
1: so with her first husband jim reed they moved back to missouri and became involved with the tom star clan
2: okay that's sounding like she's gonna leave mr reed for mr star there
1: Little bit. Just a little bit of deductive reasoning. Eventually, eventually. So Tom Starr was the leader of the clan. He was what a What
2: kind of clan?
1: He was Cherokee. Okay, so
2: not the bad clan.
1: So he was Cherokee. They lived on Indian territory. They were whiskey smugglers and horse thieves and cattle rustlers. Indian land is the perfect place to do that. Right, and Tom Star supposedly wore a necklace of dried earlobes of his enemies. Going go with this probably just a story. No, why? Why would it be? Maybe not. It's I don't cool. Know. It's cool. Don't take away.
2: Let Tom Star have his legends.
1: So they kind of move around the country because her first husband Jim Reed is fleeing murder charges. Was and- she
2: a woman of ill repute to begin with?
1: Like a prostitute?
2: Like or just like was she kind of like from a no good family? No. Or what was she like? Like what was I no, she
1: was actually from a really good family. She attended school, she played piano, she spoke Greek and Latin and Hebrew. Oh, cool. So she was well educated. Right, her father had actually found the school, but their all of their livelihood was destroyed in the war. Oh, okay. All right. So they got mixed up with so they ruffians. Were kind
2: of forced into it because of dire economic circumstances. Right.
1: They had nothing left. Okay. And so they hooked up with these people of ill repute. To get by, because what else are you going to do? So they eventually make it back to Indian Territory and back with the Star Gang. Reportedly, she was involved in some of the crimes, sometimes reportedly participating dressed as a man. Really? Fact-wise, there is a warrant for her arrest in 1874 for stagecoach robbery. That's badass. Highway woman, man. We keep having those. So this no good Jim Reed, he gets himself involved with a prostitute, <gasps> and she leaves his sorry ass. Good for Bell. She moves back to Dallas. Is accused of horse thievery. No, Bell, and was um kindly asked to leave. They
2: kicked her out of
1: Dallas. You can't kick people out of Dallas. And then she winds back up in indian territory and that's where bell
2: reed becomes bell star yes
1: that's right yeah. she meets sam star so okay. tom's son a fun note since we live in austin in april of 1874 jim reed her ex husband held up the austin san antonio stagecoach robbed the passengers of 2500 dollars holy shit A price of $7,000 was placed on his head, and he went into hiding. And the law caught up with him near Paris, Texas on August 6th, and he was shot to death while trying to escape from the custody of deputy sheriff. So she's a widow. She left his sorry ass already. I know. And she marries Sam Starr.
2: Who is the son of Tom Starr and
1: one of the Starr gang members. Right, in a tribal ceremony in 1880. And so the couple claims a 1,000 acres of land west of Fort Smith, Arkansas. Okay. Which we've been to.
2: We hiked there. Oh, yeah. We got lost. I slapped someone and drugged them out of the woods. It was a good time. Good Story time. Story for another day.
1: <laughs> and Belle actually called it Younger's Bend because she'd had a previous man she was in love with named Younger.
2: Oh. Was he one of the Younger gang?
1: Yes. Oh. She had a thing for bad boys. And the thing is... That he actually stated later that he never had a thing with Bellstar.
2: So this was just unrequited love? Was she just pining for him and was like, oh, pine, pine trees, huh, let's do it. Someone wasn't telling
1: all the truth. Yeah. Someone had alternative facts. (laughs) This land became just the hideout. For all the gang members.
2: You ain't got nowhere to go, sugar. You come on up. Miss Bell, take care of you.
1: Well, she actually said in an interview with the Dallas Morning News, quote, a friend to any brave and gallant outlaw. Oh, she's branding. She's on that shit. She's
2: like, put it on t-shirts, people. What's a t-shirt? I don't know.
1: And so the star gang, you know. Was involved in thieving and bootlegging and all that fun stuff. And supposedly, she became very much a behind-the-scenes component, planning all of these heists and schemes that her husband would go off and do.
2: Well, she would have had that sense of sneakiness, I guess, that uh, sneaky sense from being a spy.
1: And she was also very well-educated. Correct. She was very smart. So they made plenty of money doing all this. And Belle would even employ bribery to free her cohorts from the law whenever they would get caught. What would she bribe them
2: with? Money! Oh, that's not where I would have gone first, but okay. It's in the Pirates. <laughs> you want me to prove I'm a lady?
1: No, Calico Jack, put your shirt back on. So Lawman eventually came to Younger's Bend and arrested Belle and Sam for horse theft and transport- and transported them to Fort Smith for trial in 1883. She did serve time. Really? Nine months in a Detroit prison. But of course, when she got out, she just continued her thieving outlaw ways. Unrepentant. So one day, Belle and Sam Starr were at a dance at a neighbor's house when Sam was told that his old enemy, Officer Frank West, was outside. Nemesis. He went out to meet him, and in the duel, both men drew their guns at once pow, pow, and killed each other.
2: Seriously? That never happens. You don't ever see that play like that in a movie.
1: That's just the movies. So he was dead. <laughs> yeah. Belle was sad. All of her loves were just going out of the window. But she turned 40 in 1888 and decided to put her thieving outlaw ways behind her. Okay. She started renting her land out to farmers.
2: Oh, instead of like harboring countless. Yeah, like, yeah. Okay. So during all this, is she like dressing like a man? Is she pulling that stunt?
1: Oh, you're right. We didn't m- mention this amazingness.
2: Yeah, no, I think we need to cover it. Because I see a picture here, and I'm kind of, um... I need to need to give our
1: audience here a visual. we Paint a
2: word, picture love. She
1: would wear black velvet riding coat with her black skirt.
2: It was a big bustle.
1: With her gun slung in a holster over her skirt. She would wear a man's Stetson hat with an ostrich plume. And she would ride side saddle on her horse, Venus. It's so good. It's
2: just so good. It's all so...
1: And that is all 100% true. There are several pictures of her. Google, 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 please. So the next year, on February 3rd of 1889, she was riding home to Younger's Bend when she was thrown from her horse by a shotgun blast to the back. No. And the petticoat terror of the plains. Are you serious? As she was called in papers. My
2: God, a want these
1: nicknames (laughs) was shot again numerous times as she laid on the ground so sad and while there are some strong suspects for who killed her it's still an unsolved case because she had plenty of enemies not bell and the headline of bell stars new york times obituary oh wow she was famous said a desperate woman killed oh
2: bell bell was my grandmama's name And she was kind of a hellion, too.
1: She put some people's heads through windows before. (laughs) Yeah,
2: actually, she did. But That's a story for another day. Okay, so these are really fun stories. I love these stories. These badass outlaw women patrolling the highways and travel routes looking to fill their coffers with ill-gotten gains and the men who love them and lead them astray. These are great, but what's the point?
1: I mean, these are such American stories. I mean, yeah, sure, one's in Jamaica, but, like, pirates. They're Carolina ties, too. It's just such, it so fits in with those American ideas. These are the stories that we love. There's a reason these are still around hundreds of years later.
2: We love an outlaw. We love an underdog. And we love
1: violence.
2: Yeah, we do, man. We really like some ultraviolence. And it's funny
1: because even though we love some ultraviolence in our media, America pretty much thinks of themselves as a nonviolent, law-abiding people. Not where I grew up. (laughs) I mean, that's like the kind of the general idea.
2: To be fair, I grew up near a place called Rovaline, which was a bastardization of Robber's Lane because it was a no man's land between Louisiana and Texas. And it's where all the bandits would go to hide out where my people settled. So I have kind of a different pedigree. But yes, in theory, Americans are peace loving hippies. (laughs) No, they're not hippies. That would be terrible. Peace loving patriots.
1: But since its founding, America has used violence to spread its peaceful ways.
2: kind of our hallmark and you know what when we don't think something's fair when we think we're being taken advantage of we tend to you know organize an army and declare independence
1: yeah that happened twice twice (laughs) but it goes back all the way to manifest destiny you start there through the 19th century through modern day we are using violence to spread peace in our humanistic ways
2: Speak softly, carry a big stick, beat the shit out of people with it when they disagree with you. That's what we say? That's what we say.
1: And so the idea of America as peace bringers is important, but I mean, I bring that up because violence is something that really is entrenched in our society, even though we might think of ourselves as nonviolent people. And, you know, we have heroes and protagonists in our stories that use violence or criminality because there's like a moral necessity,
2: Right. As long as we believe that they are they are justified in the actions that they take, we will forgive them the 47 henchmen they leave in their wake as they make their way to the big boss to get their daughter back or whatever. Like, if we think that they have a just cause, we are willing to accept a lot of
1: carnage. Yeah, I mean, this goes back to Cooper's... Longstocking Saga, which is Last of the Mohicans, which takes place during the French and Indian Wars and about that time. This inspired D.H. Lawrence to write, There you have the myth of the essential white America. All the other stuff, the love, the democracy, the floundering into lust, is a sort of byplay. The essential American soul is hard, isolate, stoic, and a killer.
2: So, America is the mighty warrior, first and foremost.
1: Of course, using using this to right what once went wrong. Means to an
2: end, right? That's right. that's very American.
1: Right, and all, like we mentioned, like heroes, heroes and protagonists to stories, whether they be heroes or anti-heroes, are frequently very violent characters. I mean, you can think of just superheroes even. Right. A very American institution.
2: I will argue that to the death, that is super American. I don't care what the French did. <laughs> Do you think this A on my forehead stands for France?
1: But even in the 1930s, when they were making gangster movies like Little Caesar, Public Enemy. Little Caesar's amazing. Scarface, the original, yeah. 1932. They would often end or begin the movie with a title card that said something like, Crime does not pay. That was a
2: very common trope. And you see it throughout dime novels, throughout true crime magazines.
1: Yeah, sometimes they even say, as ye sow, so shall ye reap. Ooh, getting
2: biblical up in here. That's very American, too.
1: But it's just this kind of moralistic preaching... They're putting over this like glorification of gangster violence and the movies, making them the hero. Well, it was a way
2: also they were trying to stave off the code as long as possible. They didn't want that to be institutionalized in Hollywood. They wanted to keep their freedoms and keep making the movies that they wanted to make. And in order to do that, we need that title card because the rabbi and the I mean we've all seen Hail Caesar. The Rabbi and the priest are not giving us the green light and the go ahead. So if we say this is bad at the beginning, we can do whatever we want after? Yeah, sure. It's like
1: the don't try this at home disclaimer. No, exactly. No one's repeated anything they saw in Jackass. (laughs) YouTube says otherwise. And there's another great myth, and I bet you can think of a great example for this, of equality through violence.
2: Okay, so this is by whatever means necessary. This is
1: Don Vito Coriani. Right, this is the classic fictional example of this. I mean, even just Machiavellian... Getting their way to the top in whatever means necessary.
2: Do you remember the first lines of The Godfather? I believe in America.
1: And the second movie, the second movie illustrates... Why he believes in America. And why is that?
2: Because America's been good to him. He was able to work his way up from a poor immigrant boy to being the head of one of the most powerful crime families in the States. One of the five families.
1: It's the American dream.
2: And you know what? They even have cannoli here. They had cannoli in Italy. Because
1: we believed and we brought what we loved and we made it our own. But a lot of gangster stories do show that, not the cannoli part, that you can rise from like obscure poverty to power and affluence through whatever means necessary. You take what's yours. You take what you deserve. They won't give it to you. You get it yourself. Right. There's like an American dream component. There's also that part of, like, the kind of frontier America, uh, Wild West idea.
2: It's kill or be killed out here, I tell you. We're just here to stake our claim. Take what's ours. Yeah. Oh, God, we were fed that line forever as Americans, right? Like, it is our right. It is our manifest are. destiny. We must go out into the world and take the territory from the heathen savage who does not know God. I mean, we still are. We have this notion that... This lifestyle is justifiable and necessary at times. But we're looking here at something that goes beyond what is necessary because it breaks out of this the work sphere. This comes home. This is a, a bond between a male and female protagonist. It's almost like a love story wrapped in this crime drama. And why is that so intriguing? Why is that something we tell over and over again? Why do we say that's awesome? After we hear about Bell Star and Sam Star and their great love affair in the hills of Arkansas.
1: When you could think of the popularity of true crime.
2: I love true crime.
1: Or Law and Order. Love Law and Order. CSI.
2: I'm okay with it.
1: But we are fascinated by criminals and outlaws.
2: Yeah, I listen to Outlaw Country every day. That's my brand.
1: So, and the author, Martha Grace Duncan, does a really psychoanalytical approach to this idea.
2: Might one say Freudian? One might. Freud, you say? All right, people, drink. <laughs> we know. We know you've made it a drinking game.
1: And we did, too. Yay! Drink! So, in general, when someone says, oh, criminal.
2: So, when I hear criminal, I think habitual, first of all. And that is the thing that, like, cues me into... Nefarious, uh, sort of darker thoughts, sort of nervousness, apprehension, anxiety, kind of like, oh, not a criminal, not a criminal coming to
1: sell me cookies at my door. Not that. Anything but that help. Well, so not everyone, you know, not everyone has the ideas we're kind of joking about, but people do experience like the thoughts of like repugnance towards criminals. They like proclaim that they disgust them, there's loathing, they avoid physical contact with them, with this like, idea that's so interesting of like a fear of contamination by physical contact.
2: That is interesting. And I think that it it's something about like the, the branding there because I think that most people knowing an individual circumstances can feel empathy for them.
1: No, I agree. It definitely has to do with that.
2: But the idea of a criminal, if you just tell me that man's a criminal in point, and don't tell me that he's a criminal because he'd committed insurance fraud or whatever, I'm going to be like, oh that's that's let me Not talk to him Right. (laughs) Let me avoid that human
1: Why you have trouble getting a job if you have a felony charge No matter what the charge is It's like I had an ounce of pot Felony You didn't though Oh no (laughs) I didn't I'd like to keep my medical license I think
2: you would too, yeah
1: But she states that on an unconscious level This revulsion towards criminals Functions to defend the non-criminals Against their own fascination With the criminals With that idea,
2: I can see that, but like at the same time, like if I'm staying away from someone because I'm like, oh, criminal, I'm afraid they're gonna get me. It's that, it's not the, I'm afraid they're, I'm gonna turn into them. I'm afraid they're gonna
1: take me away. I think, especially, I think that might be on like a personal level, but like when you just think of like these outlaws. Like, that's exciting. I'm going to learn more about those Old West cowboys and Indians and things. Because they have this idea of this, like, self-indulgent attitude. They're free to dwell in pleasure and greed and whatever the hell they want. They don't have to function in society's norms.
2: Right. So they haven't been socialized like the rest of us. They haven't had that animalistic hunger for all pleasures of life. And
1: you want you want me to prove that I'm a lady? <laughs> exactly. Ample bosom. So, there's something called a reaction formation. And that's when you have like an extreme trend in one direction because you're kind of defending the awareness of this opposite impulse. So, you will really hate criminals because you're really interested in them. Like slut shaming. Yeah. Or gay bashing. Yes. And you can even form something else called a compromise formation. And that's where you can kind of like build your life around. Like avenging against criminals.
2: So this is like the guardian angel stuff, like vigilante. Batman.
1: Batman. Y'all, I really just didn't think that woman was going to hit me. And so this gratifies your attraction idea. You all right. Your ongoing involvement with the lawbreakers. All right, all right, all right. And your revulsion because you're able to persecute them, your persecutory nature.
2: So you were able to enact violence. And feed that side of yourself, but at the same time you're condemning them and staying within the social norms and setting yourself apart in a way. Yes. Like politicians.
1: Yeah, and so these criminals can become like scapegoats, like symbols of everyone's unacknowledged guilt. So you're id, to go Freud.
2: Oh, I love go Let's go Freud.
1: Let's do it. Delights in the acts of aggression against authority, but your superego denounces it. So you have this, like, compromise you have to have somewhere in the middle, or you can go one way or the other. So you can choose which
2: degree of acceptance you're going to have, but your fascination is there regardless of how you respond.
1: I don't think you necessarily decide. Because, you know, we form our own reality. You know, we take things in. Mm-hmm. And we don't actually exist in real reality. We get really philosophical. But we all understand things differently.
2: Right. So this is some far off hypothetical. And we can wax poetic about it and form judgments and
1: form opinions.
2: But we're not actually confronted with the reality.
1: Unless we are. Or we put ourselves in that place.
2: So this is a way to avoid putting ourselves in that place. This is moralizing about it.
1: We also avoid putting ourselves in the place of the criminal. Mm -hmm. And of even liking it so much that we would cross that line. Right. That magic line. Because we really romanticize the idea of criminals.
2: We do, but we're also... We see them as tragic heroes, I guess. And the tragic hero is something that really sells well with people today.
1: You're like, oh yeah, they get to go live their life. Think of how many people love Scarface. Yeah. The Al Pacino version. Yeah. (laughs) Or like... Quentin Tarantino's movies. Yeah. Or The Godfather. I
2: love The Godfather.
1: Or The Great Gatsby.
2: Why do you say The Great Gatsby? What do you mean? Gat- what did Gatsby do?
1: Gatsby was a criminal.
2: He was not a criminal. Spoiler he was, alert. He was
1: a lover. And a criminal. Daisy killed the girl. So just like in those, like you're saying, like we put them up. They're exotic. They're exciting. The Godfather. Great Gatsby. We think of them as super interesting.
2: They're complex. They have a deeper understanding of moral ambiguity. I love the moral gray. My favorite X-Man is Magneto. I, like, I-, I love that place where you've been faced with true evil and you have had to make difficult choices. And your experience is outside my own, and I trust your experience. I trust that you're not a wicked human. I trust that you're not delighting in it. You're making difficult choices, and I'm grateful to you for that hero
1: person anti-hero <laughs> but i mean they see life as intense exalted they have this romantic denial of the present and rejection of the world
2: they're not trivial
1: you know they're not going and buying milk after work now, you're you know, right that is some of it one example that she gives is kurtz
2: and mm-hmm.
1: heart of darkness
2: oh i was thinking apocalypse now sorry marlon brandiff same same okay now, now i'm in africa i'm out of vietnam Oh, I'm having flashbacks.
1: (laughs) And so the main character, Marlo, is talking about Kurtz, who, if you've not seen Apocalypse now, or Red Heart of Darkness, is evil. (laughs)
2: It's very evil,
1: yes. He
2: has a heart of darkness, one might say.
1: The horror! The horror! But the main character, Marlo, he's like admiring Kurtz in a way, saying that he has a vision in contrast to the ordinary citizens of Brussels with their insignificant and silly dreams. Say this romanticism serves to ward off various narcissistic wounds we have, fear of leading this prosaic, meaningless life, and, this is great, you ready? The pain of recognizing our ultimate solitude and mortal condition. This is ultimately
2: what drives the plotline of Disney's Beauty and the Beast. Oh, really? Right. I just had this epiphany. So, Belle longs for more. She says there must be more than this provincial life. And then she's confronted with a horror, this thing that seems so terrible. The beast. The beast. And she is at first disgusted by him and repulsed. And then, over time, she discovers that the world made him this way, and that there is a beautiful human person underneath who has been confronted with experiences outside. And beyond her own, and he has a depth that she could never possibly have discerned. there's something there that wasn't there before she says
1: our sings
2: I'm not singing any more on this episode, <laughs> and then isn't in alarming. It's my favorite part because you see here's where she meets Prince Charming, and they fall in love and save each other and go on to leave a life beyond that of the imagination of the average human. They live in grandeur, splendor. Bitch has an awesome library.
1: Bitches love libraries. Bitches love libraries.
2: And that is basically why we
1: love outlaws. Thank you. <laughs> Wine. No, you're right. It's like, this is out of the norm. And they were able to escape to something more fantastical and Where not the worry about it. Where the candlesticks talk. Right. No. <laughs> Where we don't have to worry about societal norms. Right. No, I I, I see what you mean. I don't have to worry about going to work. And coming home and going to the grocery store, it's like, this is fantastic. They can do whatever the hell they want. We don't have to worry about our narcissistic wounds and the mortal coil.
2: So we've had these sort of classical stories. These are these American stories. You know, these women on the run, women and men fighting their way to find a place in this crazy continent. But are they the first? Of course not. Of course not. We have Shakespeare. Ah, Shakespeare. The Bard. The Marlowe. What? No, Francis no. Drake? Shakespeare wasn't real. <gasps> lies. <laughs> it's lies, but we'll talk about Just it. Just a story. Another day. Another day. So in Shakespeare, we have some beautiful examples of these sort of fatalistic romances. And one example is the most obvious example of all. Macbeth. Oh okay That's (laughs) not what I was gonna say But yes Macbeth Macbeth is interesting Because you have the woman Behind the scenes Pulling the strings Mm, Mm. Blood on our hands Oh damn spot! You have Lady Macbeth The greatest part ever written for a woman to this day i'm not gonna argue with you yeah and then you have macbeth who goes along with it finds himself overwhelmed and caught up in tons and tons and tons of violence and then you have the lesser known example of a killer couple what's that remy and juliet oh of course but that story is so perfect and so romantic because they don't have to live to see the drudgery that would be brought by years of marriage
1: and things and commit the ultimate crime the ultimate sin no coming back from
2: that oh suicide i didn't know how to say it you know they used to um pillage and plunder and desecrate the corpses of suicides publicly so that it would discourage people from doing it oh fun yep you see europe doesn't have a violent history at all that's purely american so knowing that the tradition is older you can even look i really do think at the archetypical tale of beauty and the beast and see our fascination with outsiders and the love of outsiders. And seeing outsiders as a means for escape—you see that throughout a lot of fairy tales.
1: Oh, definitely.
2: So it's this very classical theme. But the outlaw, I believe, as a romantic figure, is something that's pretty quintessentially American. And it's important to draw a line here. Let's draw a line between an outlaw, which is romantic. Oh yes. And a criminal which is repulsive. No,
1: repulsive. No, no.
2: The difference between a criminal and an outlaw is that the story of the latter must be amenable and sympathetic to interpretation. The outlaw's career must have begun with a perceived injustice and have hurt only those who had it coming to them and have ended in the hands of a draconian or at least a miscomprehending
1: authority. So separating the outlaw out. The outlaw uses those ideas of violence as a means to an end Mm -hmm. to repudiate wrongs They were done to them. And that gives them the moral high ground in a way. Just cause. Just cause. Means to an end. And so that so fits with our ideas of when violence is acceptable. Right. And we continue to love people who live outside the rules of society. We've discussed
2: the ideas of highwaymen. And we've discussed pirates. And we've discussed wild west outlaws. We have the gangsters of the 30s and we move on into rock stars the mob
1: spies jay-z and beyonce
2: oh they're the modern day bonnie and clyde the
1: modern day bonnie and clyde
2: so we've talked about outlaw couples and i know all of you are going like how the hell did they miss this what's wrong with them what about
1: bonnie and clyde that's
2: right well good news the screenwriters of bonnie and clyde uh a little picture you may have heard of starring Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway. We
1: rob banks.
2: We rob banks. They said if Bonnie and Clyde were here today, they would be hip. Their values have become assimilated in much of our culture. Not robbing banks and killing people, of course, <laughs> but their style, their sexuality, their bravado, their delicacy, their cultivated arrogance, their narcissistic insecurity, their curious ambition have relevance.
1: And just as we've discussed, there's a reason we still love these characters and why there are movies being made about these characters. And so we should start by telling the story of Bonnie and Clyde. We're all good legends start.
2: Oh, do you mean? I think I know what you mean. Pulps. The Pulps, ladies and gentlemen, we are doing it. We are going pulp on this one. We have gone back. We have located True Detective Mysteries from the year 1935. We read them all top to bottom and we selected the best sampling of salacious journalism for you today so let's start here
1: clyde returned to dallas soon afterward on the street he met a small woman who attracted him he stared at her and she smiled at him they spoke after a moment's conversation they walked down the street together thus casually met one of the most heartless criminal pairs of modern times. From the date of this chance meeting, Clyde and the woman were seen together often. Usually, in the speakeasies, when the woman paid the bills, they were a couple that attracted attention. Clyde, with his small size, his weak chin, his soft hazel eyes, and his wavy brown hair, seemed effeminate. In contrast, the woman liked to wear masculine clothes. Her mouth was hard, her hair a striking yellow, and she habitually smoked big black cigars the police investigated her and they learned that she worked as a waitress and while she used her maiden name bonnie parker she was the wife of a sober industrious man
2: <laughs> lies just a story just a story just story just story bullshit bullshit okay. all of it all of it every single all- yet this is the widely accepted account isn't that fun for all involved. So, Bonnie and Clyde did not meet on the street. They met on January 5th of 1930 at the home of a mutual friend at a house party. And Bonnie was recently single. Wait,
1: let's back up. Let's back up. Let's tell the story of, of Bonnie and Clyde.
2: Okay, 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 okay. Fine, fine. So Clyde was born on March 24th of 1909 in Teleco, Texas. Hey, y'all. Telico. His parents' names were Henry and Kumi, and he was one of eight children, In October 1st of 1910, Bonnie Parker was born. Born the second of three children, and her father died when she was young. And her mother, now single, moved her and her brother and sister to Cement City, Texas. And the Barrow family moved to West Dallas, which was not incorporated into the larger city of Dallas until later in 1922. After their father had done all that he could, sharecropping cotton around Telco.
1: So the papers tell us Clyde before Bonnie that he was born to this large, impoverished family. He was a natural leader. Even among his older brothers and sisters, he was never without some kind of toy gun. He grew up to be a humorous, engaging young man, well-liked by all of his employers, with a perfect credit rating in West Dallas. He loved cars, the girls, and his saxophone. At 18, he began playing with real guns. By the time he was 20, he was a wanted man in several Texas towns, and he'd not yet met Bonnie Parker.
2: Is some of it true? He did have a saxophone with him at the time of his death, but he really liked guitar. He loved music. He wanted to be a musician for a while, which is kind of cool. Did have a penchant for playing with guns, but that's because he loved cowboy movies. Every kid at this time did. Yeah, he, you know, was born to a very, very impoverished family. Like West Dallas was an interesting settlement. It was kind of something that grew up around the time of the Great Depression when people were coming to more industrialized cities to look for work. Dallas was sort of a planned community. It was very much created for that upper echelon of Southern society. And Clyde's family moved to West Dallas, which was a place where they allowed people to camp, where they allowed people who were homeless to come live. Like it was sort of a, oh, no, 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 you're not coming to our nice neighborhoods. You go over there. Oh, They called it the Devil's Back Porch.
1: Oh, that sounds friendly.
2: It was. It was very much like a Hoover town. And at first, they didn't have the money to get a tent like the nicer folks in town had. And they spent their time living under a wagon. So when Clyde was about 16 years old, he got picked up for poultry theft. Chicken rustling, Turkey rustling. Much greater offense, sir. Much greater offense. Bigger bird. And later that same year, he went to see his sweetheart and he failed to return his rental car. And he was arrested. Because they didn't know he was going to take the rental car out of Dallas. He was officially arrested, but the charges were dropped. And over the next two years, he would often, usually with his older brother Buck, who was is seven years older than him, commit a series of petty crimes such as larceny and car theft, which was a favorite thievery of Clyde's. And it would continue to be. And eventually, these charges escalated to armed robbery. But this is only half the story.
1: Alright, right, so Floyd Hamilton said, who was a later accomplice, well, Bonnie was kind of a fun-loving girl. She took part in all kinds of recreation and school activities. But Clyde Barrow was the reverse. He didn't take part in any school activities. At school, he would stand up against the wall or over by the fence and watch everyone else. But he was a person that went out of his way to help people. And then Tiny Bonnie Parker was the smartest, sassiest, prettiest little girl in her class a natural performer who won prizes for her essays and speaking pieces she wanted to be an actress a circus star or an opera singer from half tomboy half fairy tale princess she grew up to be a romantic young woman who adored her roving husband roy love story movies and best of all her mama champion of the underdog almost any underdog she was a notorious soft touch for any and all hard luck stories
2: so Bonnie was a really bright kid. She won spelling bees. Um, she performed in school pageants. She was really well liked by her classmates. And her mother would call her things like profound. Her mom was very into the appearance of things and liked showing her kids off. Bonnie was really cute little girl. Like she had like very, very, very blonde hair. Was tea tiny bitty. Like she was 4'10 and weighed like 95 pounds when she was an adult. She was very gregarious, not going. And in another time, Bonnie might have gone on to excel in academia. But in 1930s, Texas, Bonnie wasn't going anywhere. So Bonnie got a job as a waitress. And Bonnie fell for her childhood sweetheart named Roy Thornton, which was not a sober, industrious man. Oh, no. No, no. He was already in jail at the time that Clyde and Bonnie met. And he was in jail for robbery. They were pretty much estranged. But Bonnie didn't divorce him because she said it's, quote, not right to kick a man while he's down. Champion of the underdog. Any
1: underdog. (laughs) Any underdog. And then so right before Bonnie and Clyde meet at the West Dallas, Texas home of Clarence Clay... These stock market crashes.
2: Interestingly enough, people in West Dallas were already so impoverished they kind of didn't notice. But their wealthier employers did. So shortly after they met, Clyde went to call on Bonnie. And his mother said, Clyde, it's late, honey. Why don't you just stay over here tonight? I don't like the idea of you on the road. Nobody did. Eventually, that night, as he was staying at the Parker's home, police show up. Tell Clyde he's under arrest and arrest him at Bonnie's home. And they carred him off to jail. He was charged with burglary and car theft and sent to jail in Waco, Texas. If you are a young girl with romantic notions in her mind and your new beau has just been arrested in your living room, what is one to do? Oh, well, of course, go visit him and write
1: sweet love letters.
2: Stand by your man, Tammy Wynette said. And she did. She did indeed. She went to visit Clyde in the Waco jail. And eventually, Clyde would convince her. To smuggle in a firearm he had hid in the home of an accomplice. Did she do it? She did it. And he busts out. And he goes on a crime spree.
1: Sort of. So this is like the start of the great buying Clyde bank robbing crime spree? Sort of. We rob banks. No. Okay, keep going. Keep going.
2: <laughs> There's more story before that. Okay. So on March 11th of that year, he did escape from jail. But a week later... He was recaptured.
1: That lasted long.
2: And he was going to go to Huntsville, the big jail, the big Texas state jail. And he shouldn't have had anything too much to worry about because this was very serious offense. And most of the time, people doing short term, you know, less than twenty years would be put on duty inside the prison. Laundry, whatever. You've seen Orange's the new black, you know what that's like. But Clyde got his assignment, and it was for Eastam. That does not sound good. Easton Prison Farm. It was not good. It was a place that was very, very hard on the men who were incarcerated there. It was usually reserved for lifers. And he may have been put there because he had that little escape on his record. A little, uh... Little getaway he took.
1: That Bonnie helped orchestrate.
2: Yeah, might have sent him to Easton. But Easton was brutal. I mean, the working conditions were terrible. They survived mostly on like a cornmeal bread and not much else. They were given like 10 minutes for lunch. They worked over 12 hours a day. It was incredibly harsh. They were beaten. And sometimes they'd rub sand in the wounds where the lacerations were on their back. They were whipped in front of other prisoners to
1: deter repeat behavior so it was reported that quote Clyde spent several weeks in the hospital he'd been assigned a task that required the use of an axe he showed up one day with two toes on his right foot missing he said it had been an accident but his fellow prisoners smiled grimly They knew he had severed the toes deliberately to avoid work. No good, lazy.
2: Son of a gun. Oh, man. Yeah, he was avoiding work. He was also avoiding the prisoner that had been raping him. I don't know that that was taken into account there. And also the beatings and the horrible, horrible, horrible conditions of that farm. But yeah, mostly because he didn't like to work. So during his time at Easton... Clyde was actually repeatedly raped by a prisoner called Ed Croter. And Clyde eventually talked one of the men there that was doing a life sentence into taking the blame for a murder that he planned to commit. He cornered Ed in the showers one day and beat him to death with a lead pipe. Shortly after that, after cutting his toes off and killing a man, he was released a better citizen.
1: Because his mama.
2: His mama, Kumi. One has to love Kumi. Kumi wrote the governor repeatedly, begging for her son to be released. And he was. And he went home to Dallas. And
1: yeah, he was released on February 2nd, 1932. And he told both of his parents, I'm not going back to that hellhole. They'll have to kill me first. And he meant it. So report reported in the paper, when he got out of prison, he tried to go to work. He did get jobs at a couple of places, but two police officers found out where he was working, and they went out and told his employers that he was an ex-convict and that he'd probably steal from them, so they fired him. They just kept arresting him and putting him in jail. Finally, Clyde Barrow just hit the road, and Bonnie Parker went with him. And it's reported by Floyd Hamilton, again, one of their accomplices.
2: So Clyde really did try to go straight, but because the... Charge of suspicion was sufficient for arrest in Texas in nineteen thirties. He was pulled in on basically like every car theft that they didn't have a suspect for. They'd just go and pick him up from work. They'd go get him and they'd take him to the police station. They'd question him. He'd be like, I was here, they'd check, be like you were there. All right, go back to work. maybe he'd be like, You're not going to give me a ride. It's like eighteen miles away. And they'd be like, Can't be bothered. Sorry, hun. And so he'd missed like a whole day of work. And he was fired from three different jobs because of that. And eventually he just kind of got very fed up because jobs were hard to come by. <laughs> so he decided to form a gang, as you oh, do, good. as you do. And he decided that the purpose of this gang was going to be a noble one, that they were going to go out and free all the prisoners from Easton Prison Farm.
1: Vigilante uh, Vigilante justice.
2: I just want to point out here that it's obvious how much he's been traumatized by his experience. Like, this is the thought in his head. This is the thing he is going outside the law to do, is free other
1: prisoners from what he endured.
2: He thinks it's that bad. He envisions himself as a liberator at this point. Yeah,
1: he is going to provide real justice.
2: And so he gets his buddy Raymond Fultz. And his girl, his lover, Bonnie Parker, and they head back out to Huntsville. They start doing a few small-time jobs and recruiting, and then they pick up Raymond Hamilton, the gentleman desperado. He's called in papers later. And the group of them start doing some small-time jobs and recruiting and preparing for their massive liberation of Easton Prison Farm. And they're gathering supplies. So they rob... The first national bank in Lawrence, Kansas. Bank robbers. Yes. And they get $33,000, which is nice. equivalent to about $60,000 today. And then Hamilton leaves because he and Clyde just really don't get along. They rechristen themselves, the remaining members, of the Lake Dallas Gang. And they're still going to free the prisoners. The prisoner. Champions of the underdog. Any underdog. All the underdogs. All the underdogs. But on April 14th, the policing stops. When the group's car breaks down in Electro, Texas, and the gang members pull their guns on him and abduct him, along with two other officials present. Eight miles down the road, the gang releases the captives, and not much further along, they abduct a mailman and hijack his mail car, but no one's harmed. Then, on the 17th, Clyde sends Bonnie to visit Eastham to inform three inmates that the Lake Dallas gang is there to free them. And then the next day, Bonnie joins Clyde and Fultz on their crime spree in Tyler, Texas, as they begin collecting more supplies for the Easton. And robbing banks. No banks. Then on April 19th in Kaufman, Texas, the police arrest Bonnie and Ralph Fultz. Bonnie? Yes, they were caught stealing a car and attempting to rob a hardware store. Clyde escapes.
1: So while Bonnie's in jail, the Lake Dallas gang decides to rob a variety store. The story goes, they went to buy guitar strings, gave him a $10 bill because they knew this place had a big safe of money.
2: So, did they go during regular business hours? Of or? course not. Oh, so late at night. Late at
1: night, cover man of darkness.
2: Knocks on the door, say, buddy, got any guitar strings? We're having a little party down the road.
1: So, with that $10 bill, the clerk says, Mama, I have to have change for 10. Will you come down and open the safe, Miss Butcher? Hurriedly drew a garment over her night clothes and went downstairs. She recognized the men and nodded to them as she whirled the dial and swung open the safe. A scream of horror escaped the woman as she turned around. Her husband's face was a mask of terror. The congenial customers had become snarling madmen. Ugly pistols flashed in their hands. Without a single word of warning, one of them sent a bullet through the heart of Butcher who stiffened, clutched his chest, and fell dead at his wife's feet. The old-fashioned gun, which he was given no opportunity to use, clattered on the floor. A circle of blood spread on his dressing gown as the grayness of death came to his face. Filled with a terrible despair, the woman whisked the weapon from the floor and swung it toward the bandits. But she was too slow. pistol ground into her ribs, a voice barked. Put it on the counter. Or you'll get the same thing. Knowing that the cold-blooded killers would murder her unless she obeyed, Miss Butcher laid the weapon on the counter and sobbed hysterically. Then, coolly stepping over the body of his victims, the desperado went to the safe and removed about $40 in money and $2,500 worth of diamonds. With the nearest help blocks away, Miss Butcher knelt by the body of her husband sobbing and praying, realizing That she must do something. She fought to control her emotions. Silly woman. So she calls the sheriff, and the sheriff just happens to have handy a picture of Clyde. That man was certainly one of them. The picture she held toward the sheriff was of Clyde Barrow. For the first time, one of the bloody Barrows was wanted for a killing
2: so yeah that happened and it's really sad and i'm sorry for the busher family i absolutely am but clyde was the getaway car driver who was not involved which he could still be charged but he did was not one of the trigger men and she shouldn't have been able to identify him it was an erroneous identification but nevertheless clyde is now wanted for murder in the state of texas and that's problem
1: oh is it but then after this they split the goods and the lake dallas gang splits up and bonnie is in jail
2: Writing poetry Of course And seriously what she was doing in jail She wrote a glorious little book of ten poems Called The Poetry from Life's Other Side And she presented it to her warden Which was just the warden's wife Who was in charge of the female prisoners When she left And it sold at auction Within the last ten years For about $35,000 All handwritten poetry by Bonnie That's as much as they
1: stole from that bank
2: It's about that (laughs) But Bonnie's released on June 17th of 1932 But she claims the entire time that she was there That she was kidnapped by assailants Which is what Clyde would tell any member of the gang Defecting or facing the authorities to say Say I forced you into this You may know that line from a fantastic song.
1: Robert O'Keen. The
2: road goes on forever. Suggest you check that out. So eventually she and Clyde reunite and in their bliss they decide there is no better thing to do than to hit the road. And what does one do on the road? One robs, steals, and kills on the road. So they begin their life of crime rounds about this time. And the Barrow Gang is formed. And one of the founding members is Mr. Raymond Hamilton. We will continue to see Raymond Hamilton for the duration of this episode. And then, funny thing happens in Stringtown, Oklahoma. While the cat is away, the mice will play, and the girls are gone one night, and the boys load up in their V8 Ford and head on down to Stringtown, Oklahoma for a good old-fashioned dance. And what happens at dances? Well, we never learned from Bell Star. Nothing good, right? So they're out-of-towners, Clyde has a pension for silk shirts and broad neckties and fancy hats. And broads. And so they're there in their silk shirts looking quite out of place at this country dance, and it's very obvious that they're out-of-towners. And they're also nipping from a little flask.
1: That's illegal.
2: It is illegal. And so some cops who are doing local security work notice these men nipping from their flask at the stance where they don't belong and they decide to go up and just check out and see who they are and unfortunately for those men eugene moore especially they didn't want to talk to cops they were in no mood being wanted for murder and all so eugene moore is
1: shot in stringtown oklahoma so now clyde's wanted for murder and bonnie's Not with him again.
2: No, Bonnie was not invited.
1: She was probably back at the place writing poetry. Mm -hmm. And so Hamilton leaves again. And so on October 11th, 1932, another murder occurs. Give me that money. A revolver jammed against his spine. The bandit's right hand reached into the register and extracted $50. Hall, from his place behind the counter, saw everything. The old butcher, as he walked around the counter, towered head and shoulders above the man who held glaze at his mercy. You can't do that, young man, Hall spoke firmly. The bandit whirled toward Hall, a sneer on his face. I can't. I can't. Coolly, deliberately, he swung his gun in the butcher's head. Blood spurted from an ugly gash. Hall cried with rage. He lunged at the bandit and encircled him with his arms. The outlaw placed the muzzle of his revolver in the pit of the butcher's stomach and pulled the trigger.
2: So this is definitely blamed on Clyde. And Clyde was in Minnesota at the time. So not Clyde. But still not letting it go when this is written years later and that is a constant theme (laughs) not clyde indeed it was not clyde so on christmas day clyde or possibly wd jones kills a man named doyle johnson wd had just joined the gang
1: this guy was so trigger happy
2: he was very he was 16 he was a baby or 17 maybe but clyde tells him go take that car it's a big chevy sitting in front of somebody's house and Clyde doesn't even like Chevys. He's just trying to like initiate this guy. Go take it. Well, the thing has a horrible starter. It's pain in the ass to get to turn over, and he's having hell with it. Skid. And so Clyde comes over, pushes him, says, "I'm getting in." Pushes him over on the bench seat, and he starts trying to start it. By this time, they have attracted the attention of the family, and so Dole Johnson, who is a grocery store clerk, comes running out and is like, "Stop! That's my car!" And he grabs Clyde around the neck. And Clyde shoots him in the stomach in front of his wife and children. Or WD, depending on who you ask. Which version of the story you're getting. But anyway, this man is killed. They do take his car, but they abandon it right outside of town. So that's less than stellar. Months later, authorities will charge Clyde Barrow and Frank Hardy, who was another associate of the Barrow gang, with the murder. Clyde actually wrote a letter to them with a fingerprint on it saying frank hardy had nothing to do with that
1: murder don't
2: send him to the chair for that which is kind of interesting
1: yeah it's got a little bit of morals there a little bit except
2: for killing that guy in front of his family yeah well it wasn't him
1: depending on who you ask, might have been wd jones i'm going wd jones because that kid shot this gun as much as he could
2: he was a kid his name was william Davis. on january 6th of 1933 at midnight Clyde arrived at the west dallas home of lillian mcbride and she was raymond hamilton's sister And he was going to check old old raymond little did he know there was a stakeout in progress for another criminal type and upon approaching the home and realizing what was going on he drew his gun and shot a man who was involved with law enforcement his name was malcolm davis
1: so then they're on the run again
2: Right. I mean, he killed a lawman.
1: Oh, he's going go to get the chair if For he's caught.
2: Old Sparky, the hot squat, as Barney was fond of calling it. Wonderful. And then WD, Clyde, and Bonnie do go on a bit of a spree, but they're mostly robbing grocery stores.
1: Where are the banks?
2: There's not really any banks. If Raymond Hamilton's not there, just think not no banks. They're they're not pulling bank jobs.
1: But they rob banks. They don't though. Really I saw the movie. Really, Raymond
2: Hamilton <laughs> mostly robs the banks and they kind of
1: get to go with him. So eventually Clyde's brother Buck and his wife Blanche join the gang.
2: They're an interesting pair.
1: So later that year, the whole gang is holed up in Joplin, Missouri, at an apartment. So you have Bonnie, Clyde, Buck, Blanche, and W.D. Jones. They're laying low. W.D.'s never laying low. (laughs) But the cops are on their trail.
2: So there was a bit of a kerfuffle in Joplin where they thought that they were bootleggers, and so they went and knocked on the door to tell them to stop bootlegging, and the Barrow gang didn't take too kindly to that, and tragedy ensued, and two officers were killed. Now, in the wake of this tragedy, they had to enter the premises to see what they were up against. And what did they find there, according to our True Detective
1: Mysteries? In one of the two rooms over the garage, officers found a meal in preparation. On the dining table was a sheet of paper carrying some penned lines that gave an extraordinary sidelight on the character of one member of this desperate gang. The ink still was wet. With exclamations of astonishment, the officers read this bit of doggerel.
2: We each of us have a good alibi. For being down here in the joint. But few of them are really justified. If you get right down to the point. You've heard of a woman's glory. Being spent on a downright curve. Still you can't always judge her story. As true being told by her. As long as I've stayed on this island. I've heard confidence tales from each gal. Only one seemed interesting and truthful. The story of Suicide Sal. Now Sal was a girl of rare beauty. Though her features were coarse and rough. She never once faltered for duty. And to play on the up and up Sal told me this take on the evening Before she was turned out free And I'll do my best to relate it Just as she told it to me She was born on a ranch in Wyoming Not treated like Helen of Troy She was taught that rods are rulers And ranked as a greasy cowboy Then I left my home for the city To play in its mad dizzy whirl, Not knowing how little pity It holds for a country girl There, I fell for the line of a henchman, a professional killer from Shy. I couldn't help loving him madly. For him, now I would even die. One year, we were desperately happy. Our ill-gotten gains, we spent free. I was taught the ways of the underworld. Jack was just like a god to me. They wrapped me down big at the station and informed me that I'd get the blame for the dramatic stunt I pulled on the teller. So she takes the fall for Jack. And he betrays her. And then Sal goes on to say, But not long ago I discovered from a gal the the joint named Lyle that Jack and his mole got over and were living in true gangster style. If he had returned to me some time, though he hadn't sent to give, I'd forget all this hell that he's caused me and love him as long as I live. But there's no chances of his ever coming, for he and his mole have no fears but that I will die in prison or flatten this fifty years. Tomorrow I'll be on the outside." and I'll drop myself on it today. I'll bump if they give me the hot squat on this island out here in the bay. The iron doors swung wide the next morning for a gruesome woman of waste who at last had a chance to fix it. Murder showed on her cynical face. Not long ago, I read in the paper that a gal on the east side got hot, and when the smoke finally retreated, two of Gangnam were found on the spot. It related the colorful story of a jilted gangster gal two days later a subgun ended the story of suicide
1: Zal. the bloody barrows had killed for the sixth and seventh times with five dead men mutely accusing her from the grave bonnie parker had been able to pen such a poem as this she had been able to lay down her pen and calmly as any man take part in two more murders Such obvious evidence of pride in her shameful crimes infuriated the officers who just had seen their bleeding comrades.
2: Bonnie wrote that while she was in prison and she continually tinkered with it the entire time that they were on the road. Clyde stole her a typewriter and a lot of times at night he would drive and she'd sit in the back seat with her typewriter and tinker with her poems. And this was not anything unusual. This is something she'd been working on for a long time. And you can look at it a couple of ways. You can see it as her... Really, you know, celebrating this life or you can read the poem and see that Sal doesn't end up okay. Right.
1: She's not celebrating it at all.
2: She's kind of presenting a morality tale. And it's something that you'll see again and again. The more of Bonnie's words that you read, she's almost like an anthropologist in this underworld of crime like she's trying to see it with an objective eye she's not at this point she's not plating her case she will later but she just has an understanding for the women that she's been around um through prison and you know the people she's met through her criminal enterprises it's not as if she was writing about the officers who'd already died after the fact and sending those letters or something this is just something she was charting her experience. Mine I think she
1: was processing it.
2: It's a lot to process.
1: Yeah. I think she was going like is this right? Is this what I should be doing? I don't know. But there was more. More in Joplin, Missouri. One other discovery seemed to have some potential value as evidence. It was a camera containing a roll of exposed film. Rushing the film to a photographer, I waited impatiently while it was developed. Great as had been the challenge of Bonnie's poem, it was mild compared to the taunt that screamed at us from the finished photos.
2: So these photos are pretty infamous. You may see them all over the internet if you do a cursory Google search and click images. They definitely were outside social norms for the day. Bonnie was seen posing provocatively, which now we would call it a selfie, holding guns and smoking cigars In one photo she's pointing a gun at Clyde's chest and they're giggling (laughs) the firearms in several pictures could be identified as guns that have been stolen from law officers and that didn't sit well with anyone and it showed the gang kind of like reveling in their plunder or being 20 whatever
1: well it's also where we get that myth that like Bonnie is gun toting cigar smoking hellcat
2: she didn't smoke cigars So people loved the cigar thing. You see the cigar thing in every account. One of them even states that Raymond Hamilton said after he split from the gang and got picked up later, like he and Clyde were squabbling over Bonnie. And he says, Clyde told me she was worth half a dozen of me in a jam. But I must give the girl credit. She's plenty tough and she can handle a pistol with either hand.
1: But those cigars... Yuck. I really do not believe Raymond Hamilton said that.
2: I don't either. And she's also called a blonde Jezebel, the Bloody Barrows game, whose weakness is those big black cigars that cause the riff in their ranks.
1: Yeah, and at one time, Chief of Police Percy Boyd was held hostage by them. And when he was being released, Boyd asked what Bonnie would like him to tell the press. And she said... Tell them I don't smoke cigars. So she took
2: offense to this, and it was seen as very, very, very scandalous. And you know what, Jacob? This is one case in which I believe I can safely say the cigar in that photograph...
1: Is a cigar.
2: ...was not just a cigar. Wait, what? So May 12th of 1933, Clyde and Buck attempted to rob a bank in Lucerne, Indiana, but they were chased out by the bank's cashier.
1: They're the best bank robbers <laughs> ever. really...
2: Bad at it They're so bad at it But one week later In Minnesota Bonnie and Clyde And Buck robbed The first state bank In Okabina And they got away
1: With more than A thousand dollars Okay So that was substantial Alright So we've got like Two big bank robbers
2: So far yeah But then on June 10th Catastrophe struck
1: So while driving Fast on a new road Just outside the small town Of Wellington, Texas With Bonnie and W.D. Jones Clyde missed a sign For a detour And crashed Into the Salt Fork River Clyde and Jones Were thrown from the car unhurt, but Bonnie was trapped inside, where her leg was badly burned by battery acid. So Clyde frees Bonnie from the car with the help of a local farm family, and the farm family reports that they pulled guns on him and made them help her.
2: Well, they had to say that, and eventually there was a gun pulled, when there was an erroneous knock at the door that shouldn't have been there, but it was actually the man's daughter-in-law with her new baby coming, and WD, in his effluvious use of firearms shoot something (laughs) fired toward her and shot her hand grazing her finger However, papers at the time reported that her hand might have to be amputated, but they thought it was the law, and they freaked out, but they they did receive help from a farm family, but the family had to say that they were forced into helping her, even if they would have just helped any screaming woman trapped in a burning car, because they prosecuted anyone that harbored the Barrow Gang to the fullest extent of the law. Eventually, Clyde's mother and Bonnie's mother would ser- both serve months in jail on harboring charges. But the wound was very extensive, it was very serious damage, and Bonnie never actually walked well again. Clyde carried her most everywhere they went.
1: So on July 24th of 1933, our gang of misfit outlaws are camping in Dexfield, Iowa.
2: Roasting weenies for breakfast. So giant posse of men has been rallied up go after the outlaws and they've ambushed them while they're camping taking them unawares
1: miraculously escaping death the outlaws piled out of the car Clyde, Bonnie Parker and the third man ran north through the woods fighting desperately posse men raced after them Buck dropped behind a stump his wife beside him each had a pistol officers circled about them called for them to surrender with a curse Buck gave his answer his gun barked his wife's echoed it They had elected to fight to the end. The guns around them spit fire. Bullets whipped the pistols from Blanche's hand. Buck winced. Crawling closer to her killer husband, Blanche handed him a clip of shells for the automatic. He jammed them into the gun and emptied it again. Soon, the hand that passed the clips to Buck was bleeding. Blanche began to scream hysterically. Her husband slumped as lead thudded into him, yet he would not surrender. The killer raised his weapon, but it was knocked from his hand. Dr. Keller pressed the muzzle of a rifle against the bandit's chest. The desperado wilted. Six bullets were in his body, and there was an older, open wound in his head. State Agent Forbes and others seized Blanche. Fighting like a tigress against being led away, she screamed, Don't die, Daddy! Don't die!
2: It's actually mostly... True... They were cornered, they were ambushed, they did run, they did not surrender. However, if you will notice in that account, they're both firing pistols and somehow both of them have pistols shot out of their hands. Right, so the officer's fire was so true that it knocked the pistols right from their hands. Well,
1: of course, they have like the grace of God with them.
2: And, and that justice. would explain why they didn't have weapons in their hand at the time that they were taken in. Right. Handy. I mean, Ooh.
1: divine. Yes. <laughs> yes. Justice.
2: They weren't so much armed as not. They weren't armed? No. not Blanche and Buck were not. Um, Buck had a horrific head wound from another encounter, and his brain was swelling. Oh, and wow. He was mostly incoherent for a few days. And Blanche was had been blinded when glass from a windshield explosion went into her eyes and she was wearing dark glasses and can only make out faint shapes. So they were not exactly the uh, predatory uh, monstrosities that this would have you believe. It's a tea tiny bit I not true. <laughs> okay, <laughs> just fine. not true. Yeah. And as she says, don't die, daddy, don't die, um, we should note that Buck does die. Um, and Clyde's older brother is um now deceased and Blanche is in custody and she's sentenced to 10 years in prison.
1: And so on August 20th, we have our old friend W.D. Jones, our trigger happy buddy, and he eventually does leave Bonnie and Clyde and is arrested. And in the papers it states, This mysterious third man in the Barrow Gang was under arrest. He'd been picked up in Houston, Texas. Finally, the young desperado broke down. In 28-page confession, he set down one of the bloodiest tales in American police annals.
2: Do you know what the sheriff's name was in in Dallas at the time?
1: What was it? Sheriff Smooch Schmid! Smooch Schmid? Yeah. Oh, his mama loved him.
2: (laughs) It was a nickname,
1: I think. So the paper goes on to say the story Jones told will have to be briefed here, but the most skeletonized account is enough to make the hair rise on one's head. Soon, Jones saw Barrow shoot down Doyle Johnson in cold blood at Temple, Texas.
2: Maybe, depending on which account you read.
1: <laughs> From the moment he was entirely under the bandit's domination, Barrow would not allow him to leave, forcing him by threats of death to stay with him. The bandit leader held him often by force. Sometimes at night he would chain him to trees and handcuff him as he could not escape.
2: Yeah, no. There was no handcuffing. No one was forced to be in the Barrow Gang, but Clyde told WD to say this if he was
1: ever picked up. This yeah, but is a- he also like recounts that like Bonnie's shooting everybody. <laughs>
2: I'm sure they were like, Bonnie shot him, right? She shot him, she shot him, she shot him, and then she smoked a cigar.
1: it was like, uh, yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, hey, Sam, look at this. What's that? Look, in the paper. What is it? An ad.
2: What's it say?
1: Be an expert criminologist and court expert. Oh, I wanna. I wanna. It says, with crime increasing, there's constant demand.
2: For expert criminologists, I see that.
1: Of course. Sam, you could write in, and I'm sure send, only $1 bill. It doesn't have a price. I'm kind of disappointed. Well, and I, you'll no, no, look, no. Samantha, Wait, what?
2: I can't. Why not? Because it says... He succeeds where ordinary detectives fail. He succeeds. I don't think I'm Maybe a... you
1: pull a bonnie, put some pants on.
2: Oh, but whatever. He says, can you prove you're not a lady?
1: You don't show him your tits. <laughs> I mean, you can learn about fingerprinting, legal chemistry, photo mic- micrography, handwriting. Ooh, graphology. That's really accurate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Ballistics. You can learn ballistics through the mail.
2: No. It's Psycho- psychology.
1: Cool. That's true. Yeah. Blood stains. What do they send you to learn about that? I think we found a new calling. same, you should write to the International Criminologist School. P.O. Box 343, Seattle, Washington, USA.
2: You think they're still accepting applications?
1: I'm sure they are.
2: I wonder how much extra I'm going to have to pay for being after the deadline.
1: The guy, like, this has this P.O. Box now. We should write him.
2: Hi, I'm interested in your school. I'd like to be a criminologist.
1: So finally, on January 16th, 1934, they decide to raid the Eastham Prison Farm. He's
2: not let it go. Like, we're laughing about it, but, like, think about everything that he could be doing right now. He could be robbing... Banks? No! He could be robbing (laughs) convenience
1: stores! He's really bad at robbing banks.
2: Yes. He could be in freaking Mexico, not worrying about it. But this really bothers him. The the way he was treated in prison really haunts him, and he does not want people he knows to be subjected to it, and to be there because of crimes that they committed while they were associated with him. So, he and Bonnie go, and they are gonna
1: boss him out. Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Parker were firing into prisoners and guards alike. They were shooting from a trench-like gully. Only that small number of the convicts appeared to have had advance warning of the trouble and knew what to do. As guards shouted for their charges to lie down, Raymond Hamilton, Palmer, Henry Methvin, WH Bybee, and JB French, all desperate long-termers, Rushed to one side, protected by the barrage of machine gun fire. They ran toward Barrow, dropped into the ditch beside him.
2: So they did it. They got some guys out. They were really good at prison breaks. they were much better prison breakers than bank, bank robbers. robbers. Buck actually escaped from prison once, too. But they broke him out of prison. Really not a lot of evidence that Bonnie was there. Definitely not firing a machine gun alongside Clyde in the ditch to
1: free the prisoners.
2: And that was pretty sensational. It was known as the most secure penitentiary in the United States.
1: So we have Raymond Hamilton again joining the gang.
2: He does that.
1: And when he joins the gang...
2: They rob banks.
1: They rob banks.
2: They do rob banks. When Raymond Hamilton's not with them, they have things said about them like... Uh. They had just a couple of kids stealing grocery money.
1: That's John Dillinger.
2: That's John Dillinger quote. He was not impressed. Not a bit.
1: So they do, over the following months, rob four banks in Iowa and Texas, netting about $10,000. It's very impressive.
2: So the manager of the Texas prison system was a little embarrassed, ashamed.
1: He was pissed. He was
2: pissed about this. And so who are you going to call?
1: Ghostbusters.
2: Frank Hammer.
1: Awesome. Hammer time.
2: Oh my God, it's Hammer time. So he does. He calls Frank Hammer, a former Texas Ranger with a reputation you can't shake a stick at.
1: Captain Frank Hammer, who had made criminal apprehension history as a member of the famous Texas Rangers, had taken up the hazardous task soon after the Easton Prison Farm delivery. He was a fit man for the assignment. Six feet three inches tall, powerfully built, he possessed the analytical mind necessary to cope with Barrow's elusiveness. He was noted for his persistence, ability, and bravery, called the fastest man on the draw in Texas.
2: Hell of a title.
1: Captain Hammer had killed 65 outlaws who had been foolish enough to attempt to kill him. And so, whenever he was recruited, he was told, I want you to put Clyde and Bonnie on the spot and then shoot everyone in sight.
2: Well, former FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover said he was one of the greatest law officers in American history. And we all know that, Hoover, nobody does it like you. <laughs> so Frank Hammer was the man for the job. He was going to bring the bloody Barrows and their tigress gun moles. Which moles? Gun Moles. Moles. M-O-L-L. What's that? Well, it's derived from the term Molly, which is an English slang term for prostitute. Oh, lovely. So, gun horse. Gun
1: horse. That's my new band name.
2: <laughs> it's everyone's new band name. It's totally taken. People were very fascinated with Clyde and Bonnie, and they'd sort of been these folk heroes, these kind of Robin Hoods, because they would present large gifts to anyone that harbored them, anyone that helps them. They'd give them money, even the people they kidnapped. They were sort of benevolent murderers and bank robbers sometimes.
1: Mostly neither. <laughs>
2: Mostly neither. That all changed on Easter Sunday when in Grapevine, Texas they killed a pair of motorcycle cops. And it was reported that Bonnie, dressed as a man, jumped out, pumped some lead into those unsuspecting
1: motorcycle cops Hellcat. And
2: laughed!
1: And spit her cigar out.
2: Yes. It was not her. It was another man that was with the Barrows named Henry Mathon. But people didn't want to believe that. People liked this account. People liked the anger and indignation it allowed them to feel. And they could once again redefine their boundaries. What made this story even more compelling was that one of the young officers who was shot had been engaged. And he was going to be married the following weekend. And his fiance wore her wedding dress to his funeral. And that was more romantic than the story of Bonnie and Clyde to a lot of people.
1: It is, like, heartbreaking.
2: It's very sad. All of these are people.
1: And they're up to, like, what, 13 now? So while driving in Louisiana on May twenty third, 1934, the story goes, While driving down Highway 154 in Louisiana, Bonnie and Clyde spot Henry Methvin's father pulled over on the side of the road, and so they stopped to help. Unbeknownst to them, this is a setup. An ambush? It's Barrow, he called. The Parker woman's with him. That taut feeling passed. I was ready. I could see most of the other men in the posse. None showed the slightest trace of nervousness. Bob, I called. "'Be sure, man!' Deputy Alcorn replied. His words barely were audible. "'I know. It's Barrow and his woman. Steady!' The Ford Sedan came to a halt between my men and Methvin's Chevrolet truck. "'Hello. Got a flat?' Barrow called. "'Yes,' Methvin replied. "'Did you find Henry?' "'No?' haven't you seen them frank hammer steps out barrow picks up the gun with his right hand bonnie parker was seen to raise a pistol then the door on barrow's side of the car started to swing open barrow would not surrender clyde barrow and the red-haired bonnie red-haired had oh. <laughs> been ready for us or any other officers that might have accosted them we gave them a chance to surrender they refused Six Texas and Louisiana officers are alive today because they shot first, and shot fast, and straight. While we were examining the car and the bodies of its occupants, Ivan Methvin replaced the wheel of his truck. He drove away.
2: Oh, dear
1: Lord, where do we begin?
2: There were about... 157 bullets fired that day.
1: It was right near your hometown. It was right near my
2: hometown. These are my people, y'all. I called my mama to make sure we weren't related to them methods.
1: And you found out you know people that were, though? Uh,
2: No, my... By marriage. (laughs) By association. Daddy did some work for them.
1: But anyway. What kind of work?
2: Dirt work. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Burying bodies. There were 157 bullets fired. None of them None of them came from Bonnie and Clyde. The idea that they were like, don't shoot, y'all. We're here to be the law it was bullshit. It's bullshit. Um, they were actually a pair of witnesses They were coming down the road in the opposite direction and had to stop because it was so narrow. And they said that they never heard any indication that anyone was there before bullets started flying. Not even a hey, y'all. Not even that. Not even that. So, that was very much an ambush situation.
1: Well, then Frank Hammer later said, This is the best quote ever. You ready? I am. I hated to bust a cap in a woman, especially when she was sitting down.
2: Well, she would have been sitting down firing, I guess. It doesn't. They n- were
1: busting caps.
2: Busting caps, y'all. This is the OG gangsta. <laughs> like, this is it. But interestingly enough, I looked into an auction that went on in the last decade. Clyde and Bonnie's death car artifacts, including the pistols that they had on them at the time, were auctioned off. Together, the pair of pistols from this incident on this day garnered more than $500,000 just for those two items. But in the letter of Providence that was associated with Bonnie's pistol, the one she always carried, it noted that Frank Hammer,
1: who took the pistol,
2: had to take off rolls of, like, a roll of medical tape that was securing the gun to her inner thigh.
1: So there's no way she could fire it.
2: There's no way she could fire it. And he also sent it to one of his fellow agents and enclosed a handwritten note that said, Hey, buddy, keep this close. Bonnie was squatting
1: on it. Gentlemanly.
2: Right? So, no. They did not fire their guns. Clyde always drove barefoot because of his toes. Couldn't balance his foot properly if he didn't have his shoes off. And when he was shot, his foot fell in the clutch and they the car moved forward and the firing had kind of ceased. But when the car like edged forward... Everybody freaked the fuck out and shot them like seven hundred more times. <laughs> oh, and then the methane involvement, man, that's a really interesting story. And it's a really interesting case, and something I've spent some time looking into. You find varying accounts. There was a new account that came out in the seventies, which claimed that all the men in the posse had agreed they wouldn't speak of it until only one of them was left because they could face heavy recrimination and public disapproval because of the way they treated methane. They said they met him coming down the road by happenstance and chained him to a tree. Wow. Took a wheel off his car to use as bait. And this is one of the men in the posse saying it.
1: So they were using whatever means necessary. Absolutely, yeah. Um as justifiable violence.
2: Yes, and then in order to placate him after... They had wrongfully imprisoned him (laughs) or wrongfully detained him. There's something in the Constitution. They offered his son clemency on a charge he was facing. So that suited. And interestingly enough, Ivy, Methan, you'll see it written as Ivan. That is not his name. It is Ivy. It is short for Iverson. Drives me insane. I have it from the Census Bureau. God damn it. But he was hit by a car in Bosier just randomly. But his... Injuries were not consistent with it. being struck by a car.
1: Suspicious. Is
2: people think he was beat to death and because he turned on Body and Clyde. Now, to further that idea, when his son was released from prison on an unrelated charge, Henry, he kinda became a hobo and was found dead cut in two by a train on the railroad tracks.
1: Suspicious. In the
2: same parish. And we lived there. We did. Like the story was, Oh, he was crawling to get something from underneath the moving train.
1: Sounds legitimate,
2: but he had wounds that kind of make people think that he might have been like knocked out and laid on the train tracks.
1: Probably more accurate.
2: So they kind of got theirs. If that was even the case, that, that other account from that officers really troubled me. But yeah, they were they were going to get him They were not, but at, they at this point they'd killed a lot of law officers and a lot of grocery clerks. Like Doyle Johnson, who was killed at his home, was actually a grocery clerk too. Just bad luck. <laughs> There is actually an autobiography written by Frank Hammer, if you're interested, called I Am Frank Hammer, which is what he would say to calm a riot. (laughs) Apparently, he could walk up and be like, I am Frank Hammer. And people would be like, you're right. I'm Batman. (laughs) Like, let's stop. We best quit.
1: So, without a doubt, all the stories we've talked about, but especially Bonnie and Clyde, have gone down in history as... Amazing depictions of outlaws in love is killer couples. The most famous, without a doubt, is still and probably will forever be Bonnie and Clyde.
2: That means outlaws in love. That's shorthand. You know, it's become a universal norm. Like that. That's just you instantly. It's a meme.
1: Yeah, in the true sense of the word. Yeah. When you hear it, you know what it means.
2: Up against all against all odds, I love you. Against all odds,
1: we're together till the end. So do you think that was a fabrication or do you think they really were in love? I think
2: that their love may have been unconventional. I think that they were incredibly tightly bound to one another. Um, The bond was very, very strong. I think that there may have been almost like a combat kind of camaraderie. The way that men who are in battle together love one another and would do anything for one another. There may have been something similar to that between the two of them. And then the idea of that a normative expectation of romantic love and Bonnie being such a romantic, yes, from what I know of their characters, I do believe they loved and cared for each other. It was not a romantic existence. Where they were living was they were hunted.
1: They were bound together by this.
2: They were. and that is in a way romantic, in the same way that, you know, tales of war are romantic, overwrought and thick with pathos and dramatic and extreme. I don't know that they ever had a normal, enduring expectation of what they were supposed to give to each other. I think that they always looked for an escape, and they escaped together, and therefore they
1: loved each other. They never had a chance for that conventional idea of love. They never had a
2: chance for normalcy, security, stability. They never grew to. Like, that song, the terrible song, like, I've grown accustomed to your face. Like, it was never about, you know, you represent the best parts of my life and I love you because of that. Yeah, they were wrapped up in tragedy. They were very, very, very sad people. That's what bound them together. Yes. And being melancholy and liking that sort of thing, I see it as beautiful. It's not conventional. They were very flawed people who found each other
1: and made the most of what time they had. So... The Story of Bonnie Clyde by Bonnie Parker You've read the story of Jesse James, of how he lived and died. If you're still in need of something to read, here's the story of Bonnie and Clyde. Bonnie and Clyde are the Barrow Gang, I'm sure you all have read. How they rob and steal, and those who squeal are usually found dying or dead. There's lots of untruths to these write-ups. They're not so ruthless as that. Their nature is raw, they hate all the law, the stool pigeons, spotters and rats. They call them cold-blooded killers. They say they are heartless and mean, but I say this with pride that I once knew Clyde when he was honest and upright and clean. But the laws fooled around, kept tracking him down, and locking him up in a cell, till he said to me, I'll never be free, so I'll meet a few of them in hell. Road was so dimly lighted, there was no highway sign to guide. But they made up their minds if all roads were blind, they wouldn't give up till they died. The road gets dimmer and dimmer, sometimes you can hardly see. But it's a fight, man to man, and do all you can, for they know they can never be free. From heartbreak some people have suffered, from weariness some people have died. But take it all in all, our troubles are small, till we get like Bonnie and Clyde. If a policeman is killed in Dallas and they have no clue or guide, if they can't find a fiend, they'll just wipe the slate clean and hand it on Bonnie and Clyde. There's two crimes committed in America, not a credit to the Barrow mob. They had no hand in the kidnapped demand or the Kansas City Depot job. A newsboy once said to his buddy, I wish old Clyde would get jumped. In these awful hard times, we'd take a few dimes if five or six cops would get bumped. The police haven't got the report yet, but Clyde called me up today. He said, "Don't start any fights. We aren't working nights. We're joining the NRA." From Irving to West Dallas Viaduct is known as the Great Divide, where the women are kin and the men are men, and they won't stall on Bonnie and Clyde if they try to act like citizens and rent them a nice little flat. About the third night, they're invited to fight by a subgun's rat-a-tat-tat. They don't think they're too tough or desperate. They know that the law always wins. They've been shot at before, but they do not ignore that death is the wages of sin. Some day they'll go down together, and they'll bury them side by side. To few it'll be grief, to the law a relief. But it's death for Bonnie and Clyde.
2: They made their own story. They wrote their own legend.
1: And they didn't need the pulp magazines, and the newspapers to write it for them.
2: No, because she was a competent girl. She was smart, like Belle. She was groundbreaking and conflating gender norms, like Anne Bonnie. She was going to fight till the end, like Lavinia Fisher. And she was glamorous, like Beyonce. And she was melancholy, like Courtney Love. I mean, she was convicted, Like Ethel Rosenberg, she's every bad girl we've ever loved. She is the American bad girl. And Clyde was lucky enough to get in a picture with her, (laughs) even if he was the brains of the operation. And he was the one committing the crimes. Like she wrote that story. She wrote that segment of American iconography.
1: And that's not just a story. It's not just a story.
0: Society 13 Podcast Network Redefining Podcasts Society-13.com I like to listen.